Welcome to JAG Talk, a podcast series featuring Navy JAG community experts. Listen to in-depth discussions about different legal fields and hear insights and lessons learned from practitioners across our enterprise. Chapter 4, High Visibility Investigations. I'm the Professional Development Officer here at Region Legal Service Office Mid-Atlantic, and today I'm talking with Captain Peter Kobler, the Commanding Officer at Rolls of Midland. And today we're going to be discussing high visibility investigations and the role of the legal advisor. And this is a topic that's become increasingly more important due in large part to the collisions that occurred in the Pacific Fleet. And today we're specifically talking about the naval ships, the USS John S. McCain and the USS Fitzgerald. The Fitzgerald collided with the ACX Crystal in June 2017, and the McCain collided with the Alnick in August of 2017. The Navy released its report late last year, and they determined that numerous failures occurred on the part of leadership and watch standers. Now, Captain Kobler, you are intimately involved um, in the McCain investigation because you were the legal advisor. Can you explain what the role of the legal advisor is and how you came to be the legal advisor on that team? Sure. So as the legal advisor, uh, the important thing is to stay in your role. It's very tempting to become other things, uh, especially if you have a background uh, in other areas. It's very easy to find yourself acting as a actual investigator, as a public affairs officer, as a person who manages the evidence, perhaps. As the senior legal advisor, though, uh, you really need to stay focused on answering legal questions and anticipating issues that are going to come up and providing legal advice accordingly. Very, very important to to stay in your role. Uh, You're likely to be called upon on a high visibility investigation on on very short notice and not have a lot of warning, Uh, but it's important once you uh, get that call that you stay focused on on fulfilling the role of the legal advisor. So what would you say the first steps uh, should be for a legal advisor or what were your first steps? Well, I'd like to say in my comments, I'll just say in general uh, for high visibility investigations, I I don't want to go into the details of some of the ones I've been on, but in general, you get very short notice. You're suddenly the legal advisor. And one of the very first things I recommend people do is have the humility to get yourself a mentor right away. There's lots of potential mentors in the uh, JAG Corps who have lots of experience doing high visibility investigations and and they're just different than your average JAG man. Uh, For for instance, Code 15, uh, Admiral uh, Hal Dromberger, excellent mentor, been involved in more uh, high visibility investigations than one could count. That is a great person to reach out to right away and and get some advice on how you should move forward. What about some resources that folks can look to um, if they're ever a legal advisor in a high visibility investigation? Well, thankfully, we it just recently came out. Code fifteen uh, issued a, a investigation guide for uh, complex investigations. A, a guide really aimed at legal advisors. It's available now on Code 15's uh, SharePoint site. And I I think it's a tremendously helpful uh, document. It really uh, is a compilation of uh, lots of lessons learned from high visibility investigations over the years. 
and it really helps supplement, you know, what's in the Jagman. The Jagman provides you, you know, some, certain bare bones uh, guidance, but that, uh, when it comes to a high visibility investigation, that guide is absolutely essential. And not only should you read it, but I recommend you, you get that guide out to the investigating officer as soon as you can and discuss uh, with him or her uh, the lessons learned that are spelled out in there. Although it's aimed at a high level, it's aimed clearly at legal advisors, there's a lot of wisdom that will uh, really be appreciated by an investigating officer as well. So when you get tapped to be a legal advisor in one of these investigations, what is it that um, you're getting as, are you getting a convening order? How are you uh, notified of your, your role as a legal advisor? It's interesting, Denise, with a high visibility investigation, there's likely a discussion going on at the highest levels. It could involve the Secretary of the Navy, it could involve the Judge Advocate General, it could involve the CNO and the VCNO, perhaps even uh, the Chief of Legislative Affairs or CHINFO are being uh, consulted. And very quickly, without all the facts, they have to decide what's the appropriate level for uh, the convening of an investigation? Just how high might accountability go? And and once that decision's been made, for high visibility investigations, they're gonna have a carefully tailored uh, convening order. There is not simply a template that they're gonna follow. They're gonna zero in on putting a uh, convening order to give to uh, the investigating officer that's very, very uh, specific. And for that reason, if, if you get a call to f- that you know, you're told you're going to be the legal advisor, you know, you're one of the key members of the team. They might still be drafting the appointing letter for the investigating officer. You should immediately ask to chop that document if it hasn't already been signed because that document is so incredibly important to the investigation. That is the document that will be your tool to help keep the investigation essentially in its lane. There will be a temptation for mission creep to solve the problems of the Navy uh, writ large. It's easy to happen in high visibility investigations. And what you as the legal officer will keep bringing the team back to is, no, 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 let's look at that appointing order. These are the specific questions that we were uh, tasked uh, to to figure out. And, And these other ones, we were not. Uh, that that could fall to other people, uh, perhaps after our investigation uh, is done. But we need to focus on what's here in the appointing letter. Sir, you mentioned um, the team a, a few times there. So let's talk about the investigation team. If you have an opportunity to choose members, where are your members coming from? In an ideal situation, it'd be great to have members coming from outside of the area that's involved. Yeah, sometimes there may not be money to accommodate that, but the higher visibility of the investigation, uh, it's it's more likely that resources will be made available to the team. It, I recommend, uh, you know, if there is resources available, to consider bringing those members outside the area that are TDY. Uh, my experience has been if you bring in local people, it's harder for them to leave their normal jobs behind. They still need to run back to the office at the end of the day. They're staying up late trying to keep up uh, with their real job, if you will. If you bring in TDY people, they really can leave their their real jobs behind for a time and stay really focused uh, on an investigation. And they want to get back to their families in all likelihood if they've got families. And, and they are, are very focused on completing that investigation. Uh, just a, uh, a thought. 
So for those listeners out there that are interested in um, maybe becoming part of one of these teams someday, what type of people are you looking for other than just geographic location? Well, each high visibility uh, incident will be different. So you want to bring in a team that that will uh, be able to address the, the issues at hand. In a collision case, it would be great to have uh, some post-command uh, commanders, uh, commanding officers who have actually, you know, been commanding officers over similar platforms to those that, that are involved. They will be able to very quickly uh, dig into the uh, investigation and, and know what they're looking for right from the start. Uh, in terms of legal advisors, it would be great to have uh, enough legal advisors uh, to support the various uh, members of the team. In all likelihood, the, the greater team will be broken up into functional teams that will be looking at specific areas. If it, the investigation doesn't lend itself to functional teams, there's still likely to be teams then that will be broken up uh, in a temporal sense, where you might have investigating right before the incident what was happening, right during the incident what was happening, and, and third, you know, what happened right after the incident, as an example. So you're, you're likely to have these divisions and, and different members uh, leading different teams within the overall investigation team. And ideally, you'd have a legal advisor that's uh, giving advice to each one of those, those individual teams. So as a legal advisor moving towards the uh, investigation phase, what do you advise uh, the team to do as far as they're, they're going to be walking into someone's uh, spaces and uh, into somebody's backyard and they're going to want to ask questions. So what do you recommend as far as uh, advice to the team? Here's what you should do when you get there. Here's how you should talk to folks. What's your recommendation? So I have three thoughts on that. First off, I recommend against just showing up uh, at a command. Ideally, someone, it could be the legal advisor, but somebody has called over to the command to, to essentially introduce the team and let the command know that they're, uh, they're coming. Uh, second, they, they should be requesting specific people that they want to talk to, so it's no surprise when they get there. I recommend that they uh, even establish what, what, what is the uniform that we're expecting uh, the people being interviewed to show up in. Uh, they may have gone through a, an incredible tragedy. They may have lost... Uh, very close friends, they may be going through sort of a, a grieving process, but I think it's important for, you know, a sailor's own resilience that they're still expected to put on a clean uniform and, and come to an interview and, uh, you know, we're, be reminded that we're, we're, we're still in the military and we're going to serve, you know, military courtesies. Uh, the other uh, third thought I have uh, is it's good to have an actual appointing letter that is given to each individual member of the team. So the investigating officer, uh, he or she will have their uh, letter that appoints them to the investigation, but I recommend the investigating officer then give individual letters to each member of the team. What's the benefit of that appointing letter? What, what does that actually do for the person going in asking the questions? I'd say that's the closest thing you have to essentially establishing yourself as a true member of the team. It's essentially your your badge, if you will, to show to a command, to show to the people being interviewed, I, I really am part of this investigation and this is, this is why I'm uh, here to ask you questions. Now, with, uh, with asking questions, there is always a thought that there could be court-martial charges that are, are considered uh, against any number of individuals um, from the lowest ranks to the highest. How do you deal with that, um, or how do you advise the team to deal with that when asking questions? 
So my recommendation would be to always, always err on the, the side of reading Article 31 Bravo rights if there's any suspicion at all uh, that someone might have violated the UCMJ always err on that side. Now, different investigations will have different focuses, and with high visibility investigations, that, that thought will always come up of, oh, but we have to uh, get to the truth of this matter. We don't want to chill any speech. The, the answers are more important than, uh, than reading rights. Uh, you'll hear these arguments. Well, you as the legal advisor and all of the legal advisors on the team absolutely have to stay focused and insist on uh, reading of Article 31 Bravo rights each and every time. There's no way of knowing what's ultimately going to happen with an investigation. Even if you're on an admiralty investigation, uh, you need to remember that at the end of it, it, the very information that you gather may be handed to some someone else, perhaps a consolidated disposition authority uh, for a particular uh, uh, sort of uh, incidents. Uh, and you just don't know that might actually, the evidence you gather may end up uh, being needed at a court-martial someday. So always, always err on the side of reading Article 31 Bravo rights uh, and ensure that that is done absolutely perfectly. And you mentioned a good point that you don't know where this information might go. It could go to another source. Uh, it sounds like you're talking about parallel investigations. In the cases of the Fitzgerald um, and the McCain, there were actually three U.S. Navy investigations concerning the incidents. Those are now complete, but those that's not an exhausted list there. There were several other investigations related to that that are not published at this point. So what do you do in the event there are parallel investigations and folks are being interviewed most, multiple times? How do you handle that? Some of that just cannot be avoided, uh, but there will always be in high visibility events multiple investigations going on. Uh, I recommend uh, if you're a part of a high visibility investigation, an uh, ev evidence custodian is absolutely key that you are gathering and keeping uh, uh, evidence. And quite frankly, I'd recommend that you, the team gets there as soon as they can to start gathering uh, evidence because so many other investigations will be going on. Uh, it's really important to, to, to show up as soon as you can and start gathering uh, uh, evidence. The other thing I'd say is if you get there early, you can offer to the other teams uh, that come in to uh, essentially manages, manage requests for information. Uh, all these uh, various investigations are gonna likely wanna ask for very similar things in terms of uh, requests for information, RFIs. If you act as the RFI manager, you can say to the, the next investigation that arrives, we are willing to act as your manager of RFIs rather than a particular command be asked by seven different investigations for the same exact information come to us. Uh, we'll uh, track your RFI and get you an answer. And in fact, it might be an RFI that's already been answered and uh, that information can be provided to the other investigation potentially. Uh, so uh, really uh, emphasize on uh, managing uh, the evidence amongst the various uh, in, in investigations and always have it be clear in your investigation uh, where the evidence is and, and uh, how you got it and from whom, maintain an appropriate chain of custody. Because again, you never know, the, it might all end up at a court-martial someday. Now, I imagine you are responding to or receiving a number of inquiries. Where, where are some of these inquiries coming from? You're talking about requests for information. What do you see or what have you seen in the past? Well, they, they will come from everywhere. Uh, the second anyone knows a particular person as part of an investigation, 
it's potential that they're going to receive a, a, a request for information. Again, one thing you might want to think about with uh, your convening, uh, well, with your convening authority and your investigating officer is, uh, do you want to have uh, non-disclosure agreements? Uh, that that's one way to ensure uh, that RFIs, requests for information, are 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 being managed uh, appropriately. Uh, it's something to discuss again with your investigating officer. Uh, but if you do have non-disclosure agreements, uh, the way that can be managed essentially is to say, hey, there's one person that's going to be allowing information to go outside of the investigating team, and you can make that the uh, investigating officer. And from there, the convening authority can decide what information uh, gets pushed to, uh, to others. Uh, lots of people have equities here. They're important RFIs, but uh, th that is something to discuss. Another thing to discuss when you first talk to your investigating officer prepare the investigating officer for that first conversation they have with the convening authority. And one of the things they should discuss right from the front, uh, right, right from the beginning, is how often are updates going to be provided to the convening authority? Set expectations. Maybe that's once a week, maybe that's twice a week, but have it agreed to because it's very, very easy for a high-visibility investigation to spend all its time trying to answer requests for information from uh, up the chain instead of focusing on the results of, the, you know, getting the results of the investigation itself. So if they're in that first conversation, they can establish a battle rhythm for how often updates uh, will be given and to whom. Uh, that would be very, very helpful uh, to ensuring that the uh, investigation doesn't get sidetracked or distracted. Now, Captain Kohler, I want to talk about um, one last piece of this, and this is really a summarized version, but the every investigation is going to end with a report. Now, you've discussed how you have a whole team and legal advisors and investigators, people uh, doing the interviews, a lot of different personalities, a lot of different writing styles. How are you handling that when it comes time to write the report and deal with, you know, what were the best practices? What did we do right? What did we do wrong? How are you handling those things? So I'd recommend that a lead writer be appointed. Doesn't have to be a lawyer, could be just a good uh, writer, but somebody who is putting their twist on all the drafts that are being, uh, while well, going through essentially an iterative process where a team will draft something, send it up uh, through the legal advisor uh, to the investigating officer, then back to the team for further development. And, and somewhere in that cycle, a lead writer is putting their spin on things to give the entire report one voice. Highly recommend uh, that that they do, that they you know investigative teams uh, consider doing that. Also, lessons learned are really really important to do as you go along the way. If you wait to the end of the investigation, you will not get good results on lessons learned. Everybody just wants to go home at that point. Highly recommend that you, you create in the battle rhythm itself a time when perhaps the team leaders uh, or perhaps individual members. Uh, it could be everybody, but a specific time on a regular basis where they are submitting their lessons learned as uh, the investigation uh, goes along. And then finally, sir, what is the best method to get the, the, the point of the, of the report out to the masses, those that are going to be interested in reading this anywhere from the American people to Congress, um, and then of course, command members? 
what's the best way to do that? Well, whatever format is decided upon, uh, you might be using a Jagman format, the standard Jagman format. You might decide to go away from it for a high visibility investigation. Uh, I'd point out, like, for the uh, Washington Navy Yard investigation, which is publicly available on the Navy's FOIA website, it used a totally different format. Uh, whatever format is decided, and, and if you're doing an admiralty investigation, I was also say under Chapter 11 of the Jagman, it specifically says you can, you don't have to use the Jagman format. But regardless of what format is chosen, spend time on the executive summary. That is the most important piece of the report. Everything that should everything that matters should be somewhere in that executive summary because I assure you that's the part that's going to be read by everyone after the report is done. A lot of people are going to read that executive summary and perhaps you know, jump right to recommendations at the end, but they're going to read that executive summary uh, carefully. So it's worth spending lots and lots and lots of time getting just right. Ideally, it should feel like a standalone document, a document that could exist by itself, and everything important that the team wanted to get across is in that executive summary. And Captain Kohler, is there anything else that you want to add to this that we may have missed today? Uh, no, I can't think of anything. Perfect. Well, thank you, sir. Appreciate your time. Oh, we look forward you. to the next episode. Thank you. This has been great. You have been listening to JAG Talk, a podcast series featuring Navy JAG community experts. Visit jag.navy.mil for additional chapters of this podcast series. Thank you for tuning in.